In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The glorious dream of Jacob gives us an opportunity to consider one of the most overlooked and yet important aspects of our spiritual and mental lives that God gives. What I'm referring to is imagination, to be able to see something, not with one's physical eyes, but to see something with one's mind. Indeed, dreams could be classified as a subset of imagination. You close your eyes in sleep, and yet you see with your mind's eye. Likewise, daydreams, a use of imagination. Some of the younger fellows in the first service thought I was giving permission to daydream during the sermon. Not the case. But there are other salutary uses that illustrate the importance of imagination, seeing with the mind's eye. We know that elite athletes visualize, imagine hitting the baseball, making the putt, dunking the basketball. We know, too, that those who engage in chess and other games of strategy imagine or envision what their opponent's response to a move will be, and then what their response will be, and so on and so forth. Imagination, seeing with the eye, is a very important aspect of our mental lives. We can see this even in terms of good literature. Good literature, you might have been taught this when you were growing up, is the same as me. The teacher always saying, show and don't tell. Good good literature engages the imagination such that you're creating your own mental picture. Not everything is spelled out for you. And that mental picture is more impactful upon you. The same is true with music that enlivens the imagination, with visual arts, with movies. Part of why so many movies this day and age are terrible is they leave absolutely nothing to the imagination. They simply cram images into your mind until you can hardly take it anymore. The best of arts leave room for you to imagine what's going on. As we enter into the Halloween season, I'd of course remind you to be good stewards of your eyes. But the scariest of all scary movies aren't the ones that leave nothing to imagination, but precisely the opposite those that tantalize the imagination, where the imagination fills in the gaps and creates the deepest sense of fear. Our imaginations are part of what God has given us as his creatures. And of course, as fallen creatures, our imaginations are tainted. The scriptures say of the imagination of fallen man that it is wickedness every day and every night. In the Magnificat, Mary's song, it is precisely the proud that God scatters in the imaginations of their hearts. But since God gives us imagination, we can be assured that he redeems imagination. And he does so precisely in this way, that when our imaginations 
again, seeing with our mind's eye, when our imaginations are informed by the Word of God and conformed to the Word of God, this most powerful gift and tool is used to extreme fruitfulness. You can not put any effort into hearing the account of Joseph or of Jacob's dream, and you're likely to get not very much out of it. But if you engage your imagination and allow a mental image to form, you're going to experience that text more deeply and more richly than you could otherwise. And the same is true with so much of the scriptures. In fact, entire books written in this genre meant to engage the imagination. Before we have opportunity to consider the dream of Jacob, it would be good for us to know a little bit about the circumstances that brought him to this point. We're told that he was traveling from Beersheba to Haran. That is a journey he's making by foot of nearly 500 miles. In the text, we're told, of course, that he's going there to seek out a wife, but what lies just beneath the surface of that is that his older twin brother Esau is seeking to kill him. Why? Because Jacob had conspired with their mother, Rebekah, to deceive the father, Isaac, such that Isaac would not bless the firstborn, to whom the blessing belonged, but would instead bless the secondborn. Rebekah, if you recall, had Jacob put on sheepskin on his arms because his older brother was hairy. So Jacob went into the tent of his blind father, Isaac, and deceived Isaac. He reached out and felt the arms and believed Jacob to be Esau. And so he blessed Jacob. And this great act of deceit enraged Esau, who then sought to kill Jacob. Of course, that it was an act of deceit and wickedness is, strictly speaking, the opinion of Esau. As is almost always the case in family matters, it's complicated. There's always the other side. The other side traces all the way back to a time in which there were no children, but Rebekah was barren. And Isaac, the same Isaac who had been tied to the altar by Abraham, Isaac prayed that his wife, Rebekah, would miraculously conceive. She did, and it was these two twins within her. Not only was this an obvious spiritual occurrence, but what was taking place within her womb became so irregular and troublesome that it also brought to her mind spiritual implications. What was going on? The two boys in her womb were constantly wrestling. (laughs) This led her to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said, paraphrasing, Not only two boys, but two entire nations are in your womb contending against each other. And then the Lord went on to say something else, that the older, 
Esau will serve the younger, Jacob. It is likely that word to which Rebekah and later Jacob clung so that when the blessing appeared as if it were going to go to Esau, they intervened and said, no, the Lord would have it otherwise. Be that as it may, Jacob is escaping for his life. That's when he lays his head upon the ground as the sun is setting and falls asleep. We're told that he laid his head upon a stone or laid a stone at his head. The language is ambiguous, but it does evoke to us a kind of picture of death and resurrection. An end to the old and a beginning to the new. As he begins to dream... He sees with his mind's eye a great ladder extending from earth to heaven. Can you picture it in your mind's eye? Next, he sees upon that ladder the Moloki Elohim, the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder, heaven and earth connected. Can you visualize these things? Then, standing above the ladder is Yahweh. But Yahweh standing in the form of a man. A theophany and preeminence of Christ. And from above, Yahweh speaks to Jacob a sevenfold promise. He begins to speak, and his first three promises have explicitly to do with the offspring of Jacob. That word offspring is code for the Messiah. He says, the ground upon which you are now laying will belong to you and to your offspring. Which raises the immediate question, are they over there enjoying the promised land right now? No. This has yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. The second promise that he gives is he says to Isaac, your offspring will be as the dust of the earth, will spread over the land from the east to the west and the north to the south. But as we read the scriptures, we see this mystery develop that it's not the flesh and blood offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are truly his sons, but rather those who share their faith. Those who have the faith of Abraham are Abraham's sons. The last and third of the messianic promises is that through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that that's not a mere temporal or earthly blessing, but that through this offspring, again, if we trace that word back to the beginning of Genesis, we see that it is the same word used for the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, undoing sin and death for all mankind. In other words, Jesus preaches Jesus to Jacob. Next come three personal promises to Jacob. 
the Lord says to him, I will never leave you. That's the first. The second, I will be with you wherever you go. The language there is specifically to guard or to keep. And the third, I will return you to this land. They're reminiscent of the baptismal promises that God has given to each and every one of us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the promise that even during our sojourn here, God will be with us. Christ will bring us safely home. The final and seventh promise is the promise that encompasses them all. He says to Jacob, all these things will be done just as I have promised. And here we glimpse the true nature of faith. The question we ought to ask ourselves is not, do I have faith? If you answer yes, it's kind of like, will I have faith that I have faith? A better question than do I have faith is, does God lie? No. He has promised. He keeps his promises. That is what faith grasps hold of, who Christ is and the promises that he has given to us. This glorious dream of Jacob becomes all the more glorious when we understand it the way that Christ teaches us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. There, as he's speaking to Nathaniel, a name that means gift of God, he says to him, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, Christ would have us see in Jacob's ladder an image of himself. To help you grasp that idea, I've grabbed a quote from a fourth century church father. If you look on your service folder in the back inside cover, you'll see a picture and you'll hear his words that are in fact representative of the teaching of the church throughout the centuries on this point. St. Avrahat writes, Our father Jacob too prayed at Bethel and saw the gate of heaven opened with a ladder going up on high. This is a symbol of our Savior that Jacob saw. The gate of heaven is Christ. In accordance with what he said, I am the gate of life. Everyone who enters by me shall live forever. The latter is also a symbol of our Savior's cross, which was raised up like a ladder with the Lord standing above it. If we use our imaginations and see with our mind's eye what the word of Christ is teaching, then we will see in Jacob's ladder Christ himself and Christ crucified, bridging the gap between heaven and earth. When Jacob awakes, he finds himself in a state of fear. He says something very strange to us. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And then being afraid, he said, how fearful, how 
awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. The Beit house Elohim of God. Beit El, Beth El. And so this place comes to be known as Beth El, the house of God. He says next, is this not the Sa'ar, a word meaning gate, grand glorious gate of the city? Is this not the Sa'ar Shemayim, the very gate of heaven? Where then is this gate of heaven and this house of God? Do we need to book tickets and go find this specific geographical location in Israel? No. As the dream itself shows us, where Christ is, there is the gate of heaven. Where Christ is, there is the very house of God. Where Christ is, heaven and earth are brought into one. With our imaginations formed and informed by the word of God, we can see with our mind's eye a tremendous reality set before us this very morning. Christ takes the bread and says, this is my body. He takes the cup of wine and says, this is my blood. There's not one Christ in heaven and one Christ on earth. That would be two Christs. But one Christ here, heaven and earth, are joined. In the body and blood that he gives to you, the same body and blood crucified once and for all, he is showing you an image and vision more glorious than that which Jacob had. And as we say in the liturgy, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, that is to say, we see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God this very day. With these great glories set before us, we're reminded too that our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of sinful men. Men of faith, but men who fell short of what they had intended. He is the God of people who have complicated family lives. He is the God of people who have trouble in their rearview mirror. He is the God of sinners one and all. And he invites us to himself that we might marvel with our mind's eye at the glory he reveals through his word and partake of his flesh and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.